And now would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be our Messiah, our Savior, which we so desperately need. Even when life is calm and good, we need you. Even when life is hectic and everything is going wrong, we need you. We are sinners saved by your mercy, love, and grace. Lord, we cry out to you. You have promised us we will be heard. Just as you heard your son Jesus when he was crying out to you on earth. You are our great high priest. You know how to help each and every one of us. Lord, we specifically pray for our mission Sunday groups. We pray that you will give energy, perseverance, direction, and wisdom to our leaders. We pray that you will provide current and future volunteers to serve. And most importantly, we pray that your name will be known here and around the world. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. And for our scripture reading today, it's from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46 from the NIV. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay, with, stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And now as Bernard comes up, let's take a couple minutes to meet and greet each other with those sitting around you. And uh, yeah, thank you. Well, good morning. Good morning, all. I cried to the Lord, and he heard my voice. Uh, how often we read these lines in Scripture, especially in Psalms, but elsewhere. Uh, we heard them this morning in our reading from Psalm 18, a Psalm of David. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Then the psalmist turns to the Lord and says, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. Well, this is the sort of psalm we love to read. The psalmist has remained faithful to the Lord throughout all of his adversities. He has cried out to the Lord in faith, and the Lord has heard and has rewarded the psalmist's faithfulness by delivering him. To the faithful, he has showed himself faithful. And then Jonah borrowed extensively from this psalm, Psalm 18, uh, when he cried out to the Lord from the belly of the fish, as we read in chapter two of his book. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah was heard, and the Lord delivered him from the fish. To the faithful, he showed himself faithful. Wait a minute, Jonah had not been faithful. He was running away from the Lord. Um, but the Lord heard, the Lord still heard, and delivered him, despite his unfaithfulness. In scripture, we also read of women crying out to the Lord in their distress. Hagar, Hannah, Elizabeth, they too were heard. God answered their cries. But God doesn't always deliver people from death, saving them, even those who have been faithful to him. Take Abel, for example. The Lord said to Cain after he had killed his brother, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Well, it's a bit late by then. Why had God not saved Abel from death? Abel alive never cried out. In fact, Abel alive never speaks. He was born, he kept flocks, he brought an offering to the Lord, which was accepted, and he was killed by his brother. That's the sum total of Abel's life. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, we're told the meaning of Cain's name, but we're not told the meaning of Abel's name because the story gives the meaning. Abel is the same word that's translated vanity, futility, meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes. It means a puff of wind, something that is next to nothingness. Here one moment, gone the next. Abel alive didn't speak, but his blood spoke as indeed the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12. And the cry of Abel spilt blood was heard by God. His was the first death in the Bible. He was the first martyr, the first person killed while and for being faithful. His was the first innocent blood to be shed, blood that cried out to be heard, blood that cried out for justice. What could God do? How could God show his faithfulness to faithful Abel. What answer could he give to that shed blood? And then right at the other end of the Bible in the opening of the fifth seal in Revelation, John saw the martyrs under the altar. And they cried out in a loud, loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They were told to rest a while as it were, to chill until a full number of martyrs had been killed. Some comfort that. More martyrs, more innocent blood. God heard, but what could he do? How could he show his faithfulness to these faithful dead saints? 
What answer could he give to the innocent shed blood of the martyrs? Well, the book of Hebrews is a wash in blood. Uh, the word blood is mentioned far more frequently than in any other book of the New Testament. And it's a wash in blood because the ministry of priests is a wash in blood. And priesthood is central to Hebrews, especially the ministry of the risen and exalted Jesus as the great high priest. Last week, we covered the introduction to this great central section of the book of Hebrews. It covers six chapters from near the end of chapter four to near the end of chapter 10, all about Jesus as our great high priest. And the invitation to draw near to God with bold confidence suggests the superiority of this high priestly ministry of Jesus. And the preacher next shows his superiority by comparing the two priesthoods of old and new covenants. So that's our text today, Hebrews chapter five, verses one through 10. And it falls in uh, two sections. Uh, verses one through four looks at the high priesthood of Aaron under the old covenant, and then five through 10 at the high priesthood of Christ under the new covenant. So the preacher first describes the high priesthood under the old covenant. So I'll read chapter five, verses one through four, reading out of the NIV, and it's also on your worship sheet. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So verse one here briefly describes the office of the high priest. He was of the people, but he was appointed by God, and he represented the people before God. He mediated that interface between God and his people by offering sacrifices for sins so that a sinful people could live with a holy God in their midst. Then after this brief summary, the ministry of the high priest is detailed in verses two and three. So firstly, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray. Now, Israel was a sinful people, but the Lord provided a sacrificial system whereby sins could be dealt with. And this provision, though, extended only to unintentional sins, to those who were straying from God's law unknowingly or ignorantly. There was no provision for high-handed sins. The penalty for these was generally death. And the only remedy there was God's mercy and forgiveness. And so David cried out after his high-handed sins were, cried, were found out. In Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now such remission of sins such forgiveness was beyond the remit of the high priest. He mediated cleansing for unintentional sins. And he thus dealt gently with the people. Literally, he moderated his passion, his anger at their unintentional failings. He didn't fly off the handle at the repeated unintentional sins of the people. Why not? Why was he able to have moderate, moderated passions and anger? Because he himself was subject to the same weakness. He was in the same boat as the people. 
literally, uh, he was subject to the same weakness, literally he was clothed in weakness. Now the high priest wore a very resplendent uh, set of garments. Uh, a few years ago when I preached through the tabernacle section of Exodus, we had a mannequin up here with a full set of high priestly garments made by Robin Haney. Uh, it's beautiful, it was uh, just resplendent and magnificent. But in reality, what the high priest of, uh, under the old covenant was clothed with was weakness. The weakness of sin, the same weakness as the people. Therefore, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And this he did on the Day of Atonement when he would pass through that inner curtain into the most holy place and he would take with him two sets of blood. One as a sin offering for his own sins and the other to cover the sins of the people. So the effectiveness of the high priest was limited because he was sinful like the people and he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And then finally in verse four, we read that the high priest did not appoint himself to office. Instead, he was called by God just as Aaron was. So when Israel was at Mount Sinai, uh, God designated Aaron and his four sons to be the priests as a hereditary office with the office of high priest passing from Aaron through the eldest son. So in summary of these four verses, the office of high priest was established by God to interface on behalf of the people with God by offering sacrifices for sin, but the high priest was limited in his efficacy being sinful himself. Nevertheless, Aaron was called by God to this office, this and with this calling passing to his descendants. Now, beginning with in the same way, beginning in verse five, the preacher now describes Christ as high priest, and he works his story through all the points made about every high priest in verses one through four, but in the reverse order. So you may recognize that that's a chiastic pattern. So beginning with verses five and six, we have the counterpart to verse four. In the same way, God did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Aaron did not take the honor of high priesthood on himself, but was called by God. Likewise, Jesus did not take the glory on himself. And here, honor and glory are functioning as a word pair. Jesus also was called by God. When did that happen? Well, the preacher goes back into Israel's scriptures to show how that calling took place. And he quotes two Psalms, each beginning, you are. And the preacher takes these as addressing Christ. The first is Psalm two, verse seven. You are my son, today I have become your father. Now the preacher has already used this verse in chapter one. There he quoted seven passages from the Old Testament to show the superiority of the Son to the angels. And the first of those seven was this verse here, Psalm 2, verse 7. And the last is Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And these two verses are used elsewhere in the New Testament to understand the status of the risen and exalted Jesus as the Davidic king, as the true king. 
Well, now the preacher reaches further into Psalm 110, reading three verses further on to verse four. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he draws the connection between you are my son and you are a priest forever. Indeed, the risen Jesus is the priest, the high priest. His priesthood is connected to, indeed is based upon his status as the enthroned son. Now back in the opening sentence of this book, uh, there'd been this connection drawn between the priesthood and the enthronement of the son. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. But how is this possible? How is it possible for Jesus to be the, a priest, let alone the high priest? He's not of the tribe of Levi, from which came Aaron and his priestly line. Well, there is a more ancient order of priesthood than the Levitical priesthood in Aaron, the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a somewhat mysterious character that we read about in Genesis 14. Significantly, he was both king and priest. And furthermore, he was associated with Abraham. That's Father Abraham, with whom God made the covenant to start calling out for himself a people. And we'll hear much more about Melchizedek in chapter seven. But the preacher here has established that Jesus has been called as high priest by God. And then in verses seven through nine, the preacher contrasts Christ's high priestly ministry with that of every high priest in verses two and three, that ministry that was flawed or that was inadequate in many ways. And he addresses the same issues, but again in reverse order. So in verse three, every high priest offers sacrifices for the sins of both himself and the people. And in verse seven, Christ also presented an offering. So we read, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Christ's offering was not sacrificial blood for sins. He offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And since he offered them to the one who could save him from death, it is easy to assume that he was asking to be spared from death. That he was like the psalmist or like Jonah. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And he was delivered. Many connect these prayers and petitions to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we heard Matthew's account of the, as our scripture reading, we call this the agony in the garden. Agony meaning struggle. And we see Jesus three times going aside to pray to his father as he struggles to submit his will to the father's word. Was he heard? Well, the text is silent. The father is silent. But Jesus heard that silence and correctly understood it. He correctly understood that silence to mean that there was no change of plan. The silence told him that it was indeed the Father's plan that he drink the cup. And we see this acceptance in the progression of his prayers. His first prayer, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Silence. His second prayer, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. Silence. But heard in that silence was his father's will. 
And so he ended his first prayer, yet not as I will, but as you will. And his second prayer, may your will be done. Jesus spoke in those prayers and he was heard. The Father spoke silence and he was heard. Jesus did not interpret the Father's silence as silent treatment, but as a call to continue in faithful perseverance in obedient submission to his Father's will. So does God really hear our prayers? We may offer up our prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears, but to no avail. We hear silence. When the prophets of Baal got no response to their fervent prayers on Mount Carmel, Elijah mocked them, saying, shout louder, surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. But do we feel that God is too busy to hear and respond to our prayers? Or that we're not important enough? Or not worthy of his attention? Or that we've done something wrong and he's giving us a silent treatment? Or that we haven't prayed with enough faith? There are so many reasons we can think our prayers are not working. We become discouraged, disillusioned, angry, let down give up. Was Jesus heard? Yes, he was. How did God reply? With silence. So how did Jesus hear this silence? He heard it as a call to continued faithfulness, persevering in simple obedience. He carried on, confident that God saw him, even if he heard no tangible answer from him. And this is what we are called to do in this life of faith during the days of our earthly pilgrimage. Carry on in simple faithfulness to God, persevering in our obedience. Well, the three prayers of Jesus were enough. He heard his Father's will in his silence he woke his disciples and said, look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. God did not save him. Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed and handed over. He allowed himself to be put on trial and condemned. He allowed himself to be crucified the most shameful and painful death ever conceived. And through all this mistreatment, Jesus was silent. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth as a sheep before its shearers is silent. God heard this silence and himself, himself stayed silent. And finally, Jesus broke his silence. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. To the malefactor on the cross next to him. Truly, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. And to his mother and to the beloved disciple, he entrusted the mother to the care of that disciple. He spoke words of grace, words of kindness, words of gentleness. The Andrew Nye, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We call this the cry of dereliction and refer to Jesus as the derelict on the cross. Forsaken by all, even by God, we so easily assume that this means that God turned his face away. But I don't think that's right. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, verse one, but I'm sure that Jesus had the entire Psalm in mind, including verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You see, Psalm 22 is yet another Psalm in this category of I cry to the Lord and he heard my voice. But still, God did not save him from death. How was he being faithful to his faithful one? But I'm sure that God was looking with deep love as Jesus said his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here he's quoting Psalm 31 by verse five. Yet another Psalm of I cried to the Lord and he heard my voice. And then the final climactic triumphal cry, it is finished. And Jesus handed over his spirit. God did not save him from death. But we read that Jesus had offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. So why had God not done so? Furthermore, we read next that he was heard. Now in all the Psalms of distress, that means deliverance. But God had not delivered. Instead, it was Jesus who had delivered as he handed over his spirit. So how do we make sense of this verse? It's a problematic verse for people. Um, I get asked about it. Jesus was heard. He was heard because of his reverent submission. That's the NIV or his devout behavior, NAS 2020. And the idea here is godly fear, what we used to call the fear of the Lord. This doesn't mean that we're terrified of God, but that we live in reverence to God. We orient our lives onto God in devotion to him and in submission to his will. Right to the very end, that's how Jesus lived his life, oriented onto God, his Father. And this language of prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears is stock language that is used for those who make that cry. I cried to the Lord in my distress and he heard my voice. It's used of the righteous sufferer of godly saints who remain loyal to God in the face of suffering, great suffering, even when facing martyrdom. God did not necessarily hear their cries to be saved from death, but he heard their reverent submission in the face of death. And the same was true for Jesus. We are called to this same reverent submission to God, to the fear of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean doing great things for God. It means being faithful and being obedient. The Lord unto whom all hearts be open knows our hearts. And he sees the heart that is oriented unto him in loving and loyal devotion. He hears those who are devoted to him, however weak they may be. He knows those who have in their heart the fear of the Lord. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he was the first human who had been completely faithful and obedient all the way to death. 
It is finished, he cried. And that was a cry of triumph. He had remained faithful to the end. He had shown reverent devotion to God all the way to the end throughout an entire human life. The old order of high priests offered up sacrifices for their sins and the sins of the people, verse three. But Jesus offered up himself as a life wholly devoted to God. And he was heard. He was laid in the tomb on Friday. Saturday was a day of silence, the most in-between of all days. And on Sunday came the answer, resurrection. Jesus offered himself to the one who could save him from death, but that last phrase is better translated, the one who could save him out of death. Preposition there is clear. And this is what God did. Innocent blood had cried out for justice. And true restorative justice was given in resurrection. And in the resurrection, God showed himself faithful to the one who had been faithful. And in his resurrection lay justice also for Abel's spilt blood. And justice is provided proleptically in advance for the martyrs under the altar. Indeed, at the end of Revelation, John sees that they have been given a judgment, a judicial ruling, and it's in their favor. It's not that they're given the authority to judge, but that they're given this ruling, and what is the ruling? They came to life. This was possible because Jesus, who is the supreme martyr, died, but is now alive. Then at his exaltation, Jesus took his own blood into the true sanctuary where he provided purification for sins. And there in the true sanctuary, his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's chapter 12, verse 24. So that's the first contrast between Jesus as the great high priest and the old high priest of the old covenant. The sacrifice, their offering is, his offering is far better. The old sacrifice was for sin, was for offering uh, sacrifices for sins that had to be offered again and again and again. Jesus makes this one-time offering of himself as a wholly devoted person. The second contrast between the two high priesthoods is given in verse eight. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. The son was schooled in obedience. This doesn't mean that he was disobedient and had to be taught how to be obedient. No, he was always obedient because he always lived in reverent submission to his father in the fear of the Lord. But he had to work out that obedience in all the circumstances of life. Now, it's relatively easy to be obedient when life is going well and it's to our short-term advantage. But Jesus was schooled in obedience by suffering when life is difficult. Now, there's a wordplay here in Greek that can't be translated in English. The similarity between the word learn and suffered. He learned, emethen, from what he suffered, epithen. This was a familiar saying in the ancient Greek world. Emethen, epithen. To suffer is to learn, to learn is to suffer. And perhaps the nearest we have to this is no pain, no gain. 
But in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, there's wide acceptance that one learns from failure, not from success, from the pain of failure. A few years ago, we watched SpaceX repeatedly trying to land its booster rockets, um, failure after failure, until at last they started succeeding. And now it's routine. And so SpaceX is no longer learning anything from landing boosters. Instead, it's moved on to attempting much greater things. We learn through the difficulties. Jesus learned experientially uh, obedience through suffering. High priests of the old order were clothed in weakness as they kept sinning, even if unintentionally. But Jesus, our great high priest, learned obedience. He has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin, we read last week. He is tried and tested without the weakness of sin. So that's the second contrast between the old high priest and the new high priest. And then the third contrast with the old order is given in verse nine. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So learning through suffering, Jesus was made perfect. But wait a minute, wasn't Jesus perfect all the time? Was there a time when he was not perfect? Well, here we have a misunderstanding and confusion about the use of the word perfect and imperfect. So it helps to think of the grammatical uh, terms, perfect and imperfect. So uh, grammatically, a tense, that it, a word that's in the a verb in the perfect tense implies something that is complete. A verb in the imperfect tense is views an action as incomplete. So Jesus was brought to the point of completion through suffering. And it's that completion that is implied by the made perfect. He finished complete because he was obedient all the way. How far was all the way? All the way into death. And having reached the telos, the goal, the end point, Jesus is now the source of eternal salvation. He's therefore far more effective than the old high priest, who was only able to deal gently with his fellow Israelites because he himself was as encumbered by sin as they were. He could only provide temporary cleansing. He could only offer up sacrifices for them at the same time he was offering up sacrifices for himself. But Jesus provides eternal salvation. And who can access this salvation? Those who are obedient to him. Jesus was obedient to his father, an obedience that was tried and tested, an obedience that flowed from a life of reverent submission, submissive devotion to his father in all things. And now it's our turn to obey, to live our lives in reverent submission, submissive devotion. But herein lies our true freedom, freedom to be who God has created humans to be, to worship and serve him in loving, loyal, obedient faithfulness. So here in verses seven through nine, we have these three strong contrasts between the two orders of high priesthood, showing the great superiority of Jesus. The old offered repeated sacrifices for sins, both the sins of the high priest and the sins of the people. Jesus had offered his own obedient, devoted self. The old high priest was clothed in the weakness of sin. Jesus has learned obedience through suffering and has been perfected. The old could do no more than deal gently with fellow sinners. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. 
And finally, the preacher concludes with a final comparison between the two orders. Verse 10, that this Jesus Christ as a high priest was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The old high priesthood was appointed by God, verse one. Likewise, Jesus has been designated by God to this office of high priest, but in this more ancient order of Melchizedek. He is the king and the priest. We have such a great high priest. And the preacher will go on to describe the person and the ministry of this great high priest in much more detail throughout the coming six chapters. Now, as many of you know, there's a word play between hearing and obedience. And any of us who spend much time in the scriptures know this. But even in the secular world, this is understood. Truly hearing a command implies executing the command. Hearing and obedience go together. He was heard. Jesus was heard because of his reverent submission, because of his obedience, which he had mastered through all of his sufferings, notably the temptation in the wilderness at the start of his ministry and the passion that is his suffering at the end, all the way from the agony in the garden to his death on the cross. Jesus was obedient because he heard his master's voice. And we now hear the voice of Jesus and we obey him finding in him the source of eternal salvation. We look to Jesus who says, come, follow me. We follow the voice of our pioneer and forerunner. He is already in God's presence. We follow him until we too enter that presence. We follow him in faithful, persevering obedience. It's not a set of rules, but a life of devotion to our Lord Jesus, with whom we have been united in relationship. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do we hear his voice? Let us follow him. Sorry, band, come on up. So, let us follow him. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. He is faithful. Thanks be to God. Go in peace.